Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In the face of situational chaos, all of us appreciate strong leadership. We value the clear and confident voice of the one who knows what to do. We value their knowledge and we listen to what they say. Leadership provides clarity, order, and the pressure necessary to help all of us do what must be done. But there are plenty of examples where placing this kind of trust in a human leader has led to disaster. That's why the Gospel of Matthew won't ascribe such authority to anyone, not even Jesus. It is the teaching that Jesus carries, the word that he speaks, to which we look for direction. This word was handed down from above as the immutable will of God our Father, the patrician of all whose authority brings order to the household of the nations. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8 verses 23 to 27. Thanks to all of our listeners for supporting this live recording of the podcast. It was great to see many of you at this year's symposium. If you're looking for a cutting-edge appliance repair school run by industry experts, one of our listeners can help. Visit MasterSamuraiTech.com for more information. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. Come on. <laughs> Hi. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 269 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We are recording live from the 2019 OCABS Biblical Symposium. We're coming off of two days of fantastic papers challenging papers from Orthodox scholars, Protestant scholars, and our keynote speaker, Dr. Robert Miller, a Roman Catholic scholar. It's such a pleasure to have a wide array of speakers all talking about the same thing, which is the Word of God. And I'm really grateful that people have been coming from all over the place. We've had such a broad audience this year, so really encourage anyone who is interested in coming in the upcoming years. It's been a fantastic time. We have professional scholars. We have lay scholars. It's been a wonderful time to be able to listen to all the different work, and we've all been learning from each other and breaking bread together, and I'm very grateful for the time we've been able to spend together. Absolutely. You know, it's fitting in terms of where we are in the Gospel of Matthew, that we spent time today in this household, this Roman household that's connected to the household of Abraham. We talked about in previous episodes how the household of the Roman centurion is held up next to the household of Peter, and there's something happening in Matthew to bring those two together. And it's striking, Richard, that 
whatever one says about what happened in Peter's household versus the faith of the centurion, in both places there was someone sick in need of God's teaching, God's intervention through his Messiah. The sickness that people experience, I mean, this is the kind of chaos that people are experiencing in their lives, but it's amazing how Jesus's word immediately heals them, and it brings order to what without him is chaos, whether it's the centurion with the sick member of his household or Peter's mother-in-law and the sickness in his household. There's this disorder, this chaos, and Jesus is the one who can order the chaos when he inserts his word into the situation. And then, interestingly, last week we came across this passage, this famous passage, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It's powerful, again, when considered in terms of Father Paul Tarazzi's thesis about the dominant paradigm of shepherdism. And we were looking at today's passage, and it seems we continue down that path. The thing about having the house or the city, or the temple, is you order things. You impose your order, your structure, on the way things are supposed to go. This is what humans want to do, is they want to impose the order rather than simply follow what God is saying. And so the order that people want is not necessarily what they get. The scribe who wants to follow Jesus wants to have a place to sleep, and Jesus reminds him, that you don't get a place to stay, you don't get a house, you don't get a city, you don't even get a nest or a den. You just go with what nature provides you, what God provides you, just like the shepherd father. Well, and if you think of this new unified household, inclusive of both Jew and Greek, as being tribal, something we heard earlier today, it really makes sense that we go right away into this idea of a nomadic culture where there is no place to lay your head. When he got into his boat, his disciples followed him. That's verse 23. And this comes right off the heels of Jesus giving an order, a command, that we are to cross the Roman Sea. Again, hearkening back to the fidelity of the centurion, who not only gives orders, but takes orders. Jesus is doing the same at the outset of this pericope. And don't forget that the water is what represents chaos. This is what God makes functional and makes orderly. And Jesus says, let's go into the waters. Let's go into the chaos. You don't get a house. You don't get to do things your way. We're going to go into chaos. You just have to keep following me. And you don't get to have it your way. You're going to have it the way it unfolds upon us and we have to have faith as we enter into that chaos and behold there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being covered with the waves but jesus himself was asleep now we happen to read mark before we read matthew on the podcast if someone were coming to the new testament as it's presented in its canonical order this would be the first time they would hear this story richard But it's not the first time they've heard this function, because when we were looking at this earlier today, the first thing that came to mind is, of course, the story of Jonah. Jonah is supposed to be delivering the word, but because he goes off track, the chaos envelops him and the ship that he's on in order to take him out of the ship and take him back to where he's supposed to be so he does his job and delivers the prophetic word. The chaos comes to envelop Jonah, to take over Jonah, so that the word does what it's supposed to, because Jonah thought he could control the word. 
He didn't get to control the word. It's God's word, and God is going to make sure the word goes where it's supposed to go. When you have a storm and somebody is sleeping on board, it's hard to think of anything but Jonah. Jesus is the new Jonah in this way, but he has submitted to the word. It's important also when you consider the context of Jonah, the narrative context, to remember that in one sense, Jesus is no different than Jonah. Both were commissioned to carry the word, and that's important to stress in Matthew because we're tempted to say Jesus, you know, is the word or whatever, what's typically said by theologians of a number of different traditions. The fact is, Jesus, a prophet like Jonah, was taking orders from the same God. The difference is that Jesus was obedient. And it's important also to remember that in Jonah, with or without the prophet, the word was successful in evangelizing the outsider. It just so happens that because Jesus who is, like the centurion, in a particular station in his father's household. He is obedient where Jonah wasn't. He's carrying the word. But it's important to remember Jesus is carrying a book just like the pictures behind us on the wall where you have the Lord himself carrying the gospel. Don't conflate the two. Don't conflate the two. Jesus is carrying the teaching in the narrative. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord. We are perishing. So a similar pattern to the book of Jonah. They're afraid. They're asking for help. They're not going to throw Jesus overboard, though, are they? (laughs) Thank goodness they are not. So far, it doesn't seem they are going to. Although the only reason the Gentiles did so with Jonah is because Jonah told them they had to. They actually resisted. They tried not to overthrow Jonah. Here, the disciples were told to follow him. And so they're on the boat, and there's this wave and the storm is covering the ship, and the disciples are getting concerned. They don't want Jesus to sleep. When the disciples go and interrupt Jesus and wake him up, they have really lost their minds <laughs> because they're not going to wake up their teacher without good cause. Put it this way. If they're going to wake up their teacher from sleeping in the boat, their life is going to be in their hands. This is why we would always let Father Paul sleep as long as he wants, unless he says, you must wake me up at such and such a time. (laughs) Then we wake him up. We follow his teaching. But he says, I'm going to sleep. You stand a guard outside the room to make sure that nobody interrupts the sleep. And it's profoundly disappointing that they're worried. It's irritating, certainly, for a teacher. Because if a parent wants to take a nap and says to the child, the chili is on the stove, In 15 minutes, just turn the flame down. I'll be down in about an hour after my nap. If you give that clear instruction to the child, just make sure to turn it down. And then the child is freaking out 15 minutes in. I don't know what to do and runs to wake you up. Mom, Dad, what do I do with the chili? Not only is it an expression of their fear, but it's an expression of the fact that they're not acting like a good student. What's the normal reaction of the parent who gets woken up in the middle of the sleep when he told the child how to feed themselves? The house better be on fire if you're waking me up. (laughs) And so here, right away in verse 26, you've got to hear Jesus. Just picture your mom or your dad being woken up because the children are just not paying attention to what they should. He said to them, why are you afraid? You men of little faith. Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And I'll say today what we have said over and over again for the past almost five years. 
When you hear the word faith in the New Testament, you have to hear trust, and that is especially important here on the tales of the story of the Roman centurion who had the same trust in the command of the Father through Jesus that Abraham had in the Lord's promise regarding the birth of Isaac. It is trust in the directive given. And I love the oliopisti, the Greek word, the little faith, those of small faith. It's uh, interesting how we have a single word in Greek for this. It's a beautiful expression. But they don't trust. You have little trust. I told you what you're going to have to do. Don't forget, we're just on the heels of the Sermon on the Mount, 5 through 7. He explained how hard this is going to be. He healed the people, but there was the command that came behind that. And as I said before, Jesus keeps submitting to the word, but the people are excited about the fireworks, about the healing and what Jesus can do. But they don't know how to count on him, and especially they don't know how to count on his word. And this is where we have a real dilemma, because they don't count on Jesus's word. Right. Even when Jesus says, come in the boat with me, let's go. Well, you don't get a house. No, 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 you don't get to bury your dead. You just follow me. Jesus, this, uh, there's a storm coming. <laughs> yeah, storms come. I don't know what you're worried about. And then once Jesus speaks, the winds and the sea calmed. And this opposes the Jonah view, where Jonah had to be thrown into the sea in order to make Jonah submit. It required chaos. But Jesus, because he never ran from the word, because he embraced the word, because he uses the word, the chaos submits to him, to, not to him, the person, but to that which comes out of his mouth. Now, ironically, what comes out of his mouth can calm the chaos of the primordial chaos of the waters, but cannot cause the chaos of these silly disciples to submit. And here I want to come back to the point that first surfaced for us in our reading of Mark that is becoming more and more explicit in Matthew. Again, it is the word of God that calms the sea. And here you can recognize this fact when you contextualize Jesus, who gave the order, Kalevo, to cross the Roman Sea, was acting like a commander, giving orders, which means that his mandate isn't his. If a police officer were to walk into this church with a firearm at his side, representing the Supreme Court of the state of Minnesota, and if he said, stand up, we would all stand up out of fear because he carries a sidearm, but the mandate that put that weapon in his hand is the power and the dominion of the Supreme Court of the state of Minnesota, which establishes order and the social contract. So the reason the seas calm down is because of the will of the Father, which is the charge of the command, the mission that Jesus has at hand. And if we could even push things a little bit farther, like you and I like to do, you know, he rebukes the winds, tis anemis, which almost sounds like anomis, those without the law. Anemis is to the winds, anomis is those without the law. So he speaks to the ones without the law and to the sea, which is the primordial chaos, and things become ordered again. So remember, the word against which Jonah rebelled, caused him to be thrown into the sea and caused him to submit to the sea. The sea overtook him. But the one who bore the word 
bravely and with faith, with trust like Jesus, the chaos and the sea submits to him. And you don't need to wake him up from his nap because he's carrying the word with faith and with trust, and he doesn't need to worry about the chaos overcoming him. And let me take your point further about the word animos. In his commentary on Matthew, Father Paul points out that this section of Matthew is patterned after Galatians. So Paul went to the nations and then came back down to Jerusalem, which we'll see next week in the subsequent pericope. But here I want everyone to hear what Dr. Benton is saying. Animos, which means wins, and anomos, which means lawless. Nomos is law without law. Now, if you take that and contextualize it again in this point that it's the Roman Sea, Jesus now is going out to bring order to the Gentiles through God's instruction. It's clear here just from the narrative context, but then there are these gems of terminology that make it inescapable. The men and women were amazed and said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And I submit to you, it's the wrong question. That is the question of theology, and it's the wrong question. The right question is, what is it that he's saying that brings order to the chaos of the Gentile world? What is the word that was put in his mouth? That's why you can't conflate Jesus with the book. You can in the sense that Jesus is a character in a story, and he is part of the content of that story. So in this sense, you can say he comes out of the words of Scripture. But in the story, he's a prophet who is bringing the Torah to the nations, which is his father's instruction. We heard earlier in Dr. Miller's presentation a reminder that Torah doesn't mean law, it means instruction, even catechesis. Right, and as we learned when we were listening to Father Paul earlier today, we didn't say, wow, that was great. (laughs) That's amazing. That was amazing. (laughs) What kind of man is this that spoke? (laughs) We didn't, in other words, we didn't marvel. Because when Jesus says, why are you fearful, you of little faith, you without trust, this is a rebuke against them. And what's their response? Ooh, ah. (laughs) And that's been what's been happening all along with the healings that have been coming before in chapter 8, is everyone wants to say ooh and ah. They don't want to listen to the rebuke that Jesus brings. They don't want to listen to the word. And as you said, Father, they say, what kind of man is this? It's not about the man. It's about the word. It wasn't the man that rebuked the winds. It was his word. When he was asleep, the storm came. It wasn't about the man. It was when he spoke that the chaos submitted. This is what's important. First of all, when human beings marvel in Matthew, you have to worry because that's not the correct response. The correct response is obedience not ooh, ah. What happens with Jesus is once he stops being ooh and ah and he starts saying things that make you feel bad, the people leave. When he no longer looks impressive, people leave. When he looks shameful, people leave. They're not marveling anymore. And then even worse, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? They didn't obey him. Correct. They misunderstood. They, the winds, and the sea obeyed his word. The people let themselves off the hook. He gave you the word. You have the word. All you have to do is submit to the word, and now it's your turn to go and speak to the nations. 
Oh, no, no, I could never do that. I'm not a man like Jesus. No, 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 it's not about the man Jesus. It's about the word. And anyone has the opportunity who has ears to hear to submit to the word and to be faithful to the word and to trust. Just go back to the suffering servant in Isaiah. And here it's always important to remember chronology, even if we accept Father Paul's thesis, which obviously we do, that the text was written at once. Even if you don't accept that thesis, you have to at least honor chronology, which means that when Isaiah is talking about the suffering servant, there is no Jesus, which means that someone was accountable to bear the infirmities of the nations. Someone was accountable to cross the Roman Sea. Someone was accountable to do what Jesus is doing, but no one did. Which means that exactly as you said, when they're marveling about Jesus, they are absolving themselves of their responsibility to serve the Torah and their ministry to the nations. It's unacceptable. Deeply problematic. I want to go back to this idea of the mandate. You know, this week at the symposium, we had instructions from the state of Minnesota, from the city of St. Paul, that we had to park on what, the even side or the odd side? We had to park on the odd side. Now, the person who comes to ticket you for parking on the even side of the road, you're not going to say, what kind of a man is this? You're probably going to want to spit on them. And you're going to do what they say, not because it's amazing and interesting, but because you know that a court of law in the city of St. Paul will make you pay the fine for parking incorrectly, which means who has the power with which you should be amazed? Again, it's the state court, the city ordinances and so forth. And you have here, insofar as we understand the resurrection in Mark, for example, as the scroll of the law breaking free from the shackles of the Haikal, the temple in Jerusalem, in the sense that Peter's mother-in-law is reminiscent of the law in the sound of her name, again, hearkening to the auticality of Scripture. I think that's a new word that was coined today. (laughs) It's a nice word, right, Father Sergius? Auticality. (laughs) You know, you hear the word mother-in-law, which sounds like the word for five in Greek, and then suddenly Peter's household, Peter the apostle to the Jews, this household is opened up, and then suddenly those who are possessed by false teachings are healed, you know, the metaphor of demon possession. And then, because the law has been set free from captivity in Peter's household, it is only then that Jesus is able to set out to address the chaos in the Roman Sea. The Roman Sea, and this is why the only character in eight so far that's done the right thing is the centurion, the Roman. Why? Because he says, No, I don't need you, Jesus, to come into my house. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. It's the word. Only the centurion so far has understood that it's just the word. The leper is like, Jesus, heal me. Okay, you're healed. Go do what Moses told you to do. Peter significantly says, yeah, Jesus, you can come on into my house. After centurion is like, no way can you come to my house. I'm not worthy of you coming into my house. Peter's like, oh, come on in. But if it's not about Jesus, but about the word that Jesus brings, that makes the hearer more accountable. I study languages, and I talk to people who want to learn languages. They say, oh, Rich, you know, you're so good at languages. What could I do to study languages? I'm like, well, how many hours have you been putting into your language? It's like, oh, you know, it's so frustrating. It's like, yeah, you know, if you're not putting a couple hours uh, in, you're not going to make very much progress. And 
my wife, who was a piano teacher for a long time, and she said the students who were most excited about piano were the ones who practiced the most, not the other way around. Because when you practice a lot, that's when you become better and you get excited about the progress you're making. It's not who's talented at piano, it's who sits down and just practices and does what the teacher says. Oh, I'm never going to be as good as my teacher. My teacher's just talented. No, the teacher said, go and practice and you'll be fine. So if you submit to the word of the teacher who says, just go practice, you'll be fine, rather than say, oh, there's no way I'm going to be amazed. Teacher, would you just play some more for me? Because it's just beautiful when you play. That's laziness. When you receive the word from the teacher, you're accountable to that word. When Jesus already said, it's chaos out there, you're not going to get a house. You don't get to bury your father. You just go and you are like the shepherd who's going from one oasis to the next, hoping that the oasis has water like you planned. But if it doesn't, you change plans. You go to the next one. It's chaos. You have to submit to the will of nature, which expresses the will of God. So here I want to hearken back to a conversation we had last night over drinks. Dr. Dudna, we were talking about the problem of slavery and how in the Quaker tradition, this was a real challenge historically for Americans. And we were talking about the importance of clinging to these difficult functions, these difficult metaphors, these difficult texts in the Bible. And here, this is clearly true with respect to the Roman household, because something Matthew understands that is not intuitive for Americans who bask in the comfort of egalitarianism. What's very clear for Matthew is that the household is not egalitarian which means that if the centurion is told to do something, he is as a slave with respect to the one above him, and he has to do it. And we all know that Israel did not do what they were called to do in the narrative arc of the Bible, which is why no one could fulfill the teaching of the suffering servant until Jesus did. And it's not magic. He did it because he submitted to the order that came down from above. And here Matthew is challenging us, and within the context of this gathering, it's extremely important and critical for all of us, whether we're clergy or scholars or many of the wonderful presentations made by those who are both from among the laity and don't have the title PhD after their name. All of us are responsible to do what Jesus did, which is to take his Father's teaching, carry it with us, and share it everywhere we go, and to be so committed to it that we have no concern whatsoever for any kind of permanent place to live. We just keep moving and keep teaching. And here is where we observed last week, Dr. Benton, that Matthew's starting to feel a little bit like Mark. Because in Mark, Jesus keeps saying, which I like to translate into Arabic as yalla. (laughs) He just keeps moving all throughout the gospel. He's carrying the message around, and now we have the same function here in Matthew with the added emphasis on being, in effect, not tied to a, a specific place that you would call home. So homeless in the sense of a shepherd who will take his flock where he needs to feed them, and is free to go wherever he wants to go because he's not tied down. And that's the power of the word. It's not tied down. Jesus is the shepherd who keeps moving with the word, and you always have access to this word as long as you listen to what comes out of his mouth. 
and you keep following. But it's exactly right. You are the sheep who is listening for this word. Don't be amazed at the shepherd. It's not the shepherd. It's the shepherd's word that makes the flock. Now, I'll say that over drinks at Boca Chica on the west side, yes, that was a plug for my hometown. When we're sitting together chatting, it is egalitarian. You know, Father Paul talked earlier about the importance of functionality in the way we even understand our ministries. In other words, when we sit together at a local Mexican tavern, we're sitting as brothers, as equals. I mean, it's the table fellowship. It wasn't a place where any one of us was standing up to proclaim the gospel to the other, right? So to hold on to this hierarchical authoritarian structure of the New Testament is not to impose it on all of your everyday relationships. It's to understand how it functions in the story for its purpose, which does put pressure on us in a very non-egalitarian way to take the good news of the gospel out among the nations for the sake of the poor. And it doesn't work without pressure. If it could work without pressure, we would not have needed the story of Jesus to complete the narrative circle. The hierarchy is set up by who knows the word, and it's just like, if my dishwasher stops working, I'm going to talk to Scott Brown. All the way from New Hampshire for the podcast. <laughs> talk, about, talk about a true listener. That's fantastic. So I'm going to go to Scott Brown, and he's going to tell me about my dishwasher. I'm not going to say, I'm a guy, you're a guy, we're both equal. No. And I can even say, I know the Bible, you don't know the Bible. If I need my dishwasher to work, it doesn't matter. The only word that bears weight is Scott Brown's word in that situation because he's the one who knows. Now, fortunately for everyone else, he's expanding. So now you can go on his website. That's right. This is a plug. (laughs) (laughs) And it is shameless. Because you're not supposed to do what we do. You're supposed to do what we say. So, so please. But you go on the website. Why? Not to learn the glory of Scott Brown. You go on the website so you can gain his word about how to fix appliances. So, Scott, real quick, to really make this a true plug, what is your website? MasterSamuraiTech.com. MasterSamuraiTech.com. Burn it into your minds, folks. So, just because you have a sword doesn't mean you're a master samurai. (laughs) You might just be a samurai. You go to the master samurai if you really want to learn how to fix the machine because he is the one with the word, with the experience, and people are not equal. And he taught his sons, which means we don't ultimately need Scott. We need his teaching. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you very much, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.